invite you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 10, or you can find this passage, John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, printed on the insert that is in your bulletin. Right now, we, uh, we're going through a series on the I Am statements of Jesus that are found in John's Gospels, these unique statements where Jesus describes Himself to us, uh, where, places where He tells us things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. In fact, those are the two I am statements that we looked at the previous two weeks, and we, we actually have five more to go. And, but now in John chapter 10, in John chapter 10, there are actually two I am statements, and we're going to deal with the first one that shows up uh, in verse 7 and verse 9, when Jesus says, I am the gate. And the second one actually comes in verse 11, which we will, we're not going to read that this morning. We'll read it next week, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Um, it's actually very interesting how Jesus weaves these metaphors in and out of one another throughout this passage. But like I said, our goal this morning is going to focus on what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the gate. And so our primary focus is going to be on verses 7 through 10 this morning. But let's read together verses 1 through 10 of John chapter 10. Jesus is speaking and he says, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. <clears throat> whoever, enters, <clears throat> excuse me, whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we do come now to ask for your help because we know that from you come the words of life. And Father, as we come into this place and come now to sit at your feet and to hear you speak to your people, to your sheep. We recognize that we come into this place all facing different things in this life. To some degree or other, we are all facing different symptoms of the brokenness of this world. And so it's natural that some would come in this morning and find themselves full of worry, anxious about the things to come in this very coming week, even find themselves here desperately needing uh, a word, a sentence from you that 
would help them carry on and make it through the next week. Others come into this place and they just feel tired and beat down with the struggles of living in this broken world. Still others come and they come with excitement. Excitement to be with you and with your people. But at the same time, and even in the same pew, there are others who find themselves wondering how they even came to find themselves in a church this morning. Because they don't know if they believe it. They don't know if it's true. Or maybe even the doubts are much more personal. Wondering if the good news of the gospel, this announcement that the holy, holy, holy God came to rescue His people from their sins. Wondering if that can be true of them because they know the depth of their brokenness. Father, however we come this morning, please God, show us that we are all the same. We all need the same thing. We're all broken. We're all sinful. Frail and fallen. And the truth is, we don't know the half of it. We can't plumb the depths of our hearts and we don't know the half of the wickedness that lies there. And so we all stand needing the same thing this morning. We need the good news. We need the good news that can change us and transform us and give us hope and can replace our despair and our worry with joy. We need to know that though we are far more broken than we can imagine, we are also because of Jesus and His person and work at the same time, in the same breath, more loved and more accepted and more secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. And we need that truth to set us free and transform us. So we pray that you would help us this morning to see Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, I want to just jump in this morning uh, by pointing out what I think is the elephant in the room when it comes to this passage. And What I'm talking about here is what seems to be the shocking egocentricity of Jesus. He just comes right out and says it. He says, I am the gate. Right? I mean, he is saying, if you are going to find life, you have to come through me. There's no other way. When Jesus says that he's the bread of life or he's the light of the world, like we looked at the past couple of weeks... Those, those claims are just as egocentric, but because of the metaphors involved, it takes us a little bit more to figure out maybe exactly what buttons Jesus is pushing. But here it just seems, at least to me, it just seems so in your face and so blunt, right? I am the gate. There is no other way to life except by coming through me. But I, I, I want to say to you this morning that this is not... This isn't an anomaly, right? This isn't a break from Jesus' pattern. He is constantly 
As you read through the Gospels, he is constantly throughout his life making these kinds of egocentric claims. It actually can be kind of fun to look for those claims if you get out your Bible. But, you know, right, when he heals a paralyzed man at the beginning of Mark's Gospel account, when he heals this paralyzed man, he tells him, your sins are forgiven. You know what Jesus was saying in that moment? He was saying to this man, he was saying, all of your sins... All of your brokenness, all of your wickedness, it was really against me. And they just met five minutes ago. I mean, that's shockingly egocentric that Jesus would say that. You know, there's another place where Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Right? He's, he's saying to His people, He's saying, do you remember that story, that, that old, old story about how God created the heavens and the earth in six days and then rested on the seventh day? Jesus is saying, that's my day. Because I was there, and I created everything that there is. And when I was done with my work, I rested on the seventh day. That day belongs to me. Right? Jesus almost does it just off the cuff sometimes. You know, it just, you know, almost throwaway statements. Jesus, he's debriefing his disciples in Luke chapter 10. Look, look this story up. He's debriefing his disciples in Luke chapter 10 after they have come back to him after basically a short-term missionary trip, right? He had sent them out two by two, and they come back to Jesus, and they're telling him of all the wonderful things. They are excited, all the wonderful things they did. And they come back and they say, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. You know what the first thing Jesus says to them? He just says, yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> right? It's just kind of matter-of-factly, yeah. You, you met, before there was a material universe, um, I was there, and I saw Satan go bad. I saw Lucifer go down. It was not a good day. You know, just out there. Um, but anyway, I, I thought it was funny, but... Here's my point. Jesus' egocentricity it just kind of jumps off the page here, but it's really everywhere. He is just so blunt. He says, I am the gate. And I want you to understand this, and hopefully you'll see this as we and get a sense of this as we go this morning. Because you have seen egocentricity in people before. And it's a major turnoff, right? But you have never seen egocentricity like this before egocentricity without any arrogance whatsoever egocentricity that is full of welcome and grace egocentricity that is entirely self-denying and self-sacrificing now this morning i'm, I'm going to actually work through this passage a little differently than usual so we'll see how that goes but i basically want to run through my three points with you very briefly this morning and then end with three points of application for us and for our church. And here is what I want you to see. This blunt, this egocentric claim of Jesus to be the gate, right? Um, it means that Jesus removes neutrality. This blunt claim of His, it means that He is threatening self-righteousness. This claim of His means that He saves by grace and by grace alone. So, so let me show you these. First, Jesus removes neutrality. You know, there's that famous place in C.S. Lewis, 
Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the children are asking these questions about Aslan the, uh, the Lion. And Aslan the Lion is this character in these stories that represents Jesus. But frightened at the prospect of meeting this lion, this Aslan, Lucy asks, you know, then he isn't safe? And the response she gets back is, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, when Jesus claims to be the gate, he removes neutrality from the equation when it comes to dealing with him, right? He takes it completely off the table. He won't allow you. He won't allow me to just dismiss him or say he doesn't really matter. He won't allow you to imagine that he is a safe little kitty cat and you can just ignore him if you want and go about life as usual. Right? No, he's a lion, right? And if you or I even dare to pretend that he doesn't matter, you better watch out <laughs> because you have a lion by the tail and he isn't safe. He's the king and you have to deal with him. Right? He's saying as bluntly as possible, in this metaphor, you are either outside in the unprotected wilderness or you have come in through me to a place of rest, to a place of peace, to a place of safety and life, the sheep pit. Right? But there is no option. There is no third option of neutrality. You can't just dismiss him. And do you realize that Jesus... This, he's, he's doing this throughout his entire ministry when you read through the Gospels. And this is part of the reason I gave you some of those other examples as we began of his shocking egocentricity because he is constantly pushing people off of the imaginary fence to say, you have to deal with me. And he's saying, you can love me or you can hate me. I mean, you can worship me or you can reject me. Right? You can kill me or you can follow me. But there is no third option. There is no safe place. There is no neutrality. Now listen, this may be the most obvious point, I think, in this claim, but it's also the most problematic for us. It's a tremendous hurdle for us. And it's a hurdle for us because we live and we move and we have our being in a culture that says there are absolutely no absolutes. And that has affected us all to some degree. You know, we live in a culture that says, don't claim to know the truth, because if you claim to know the truth, you're being a bigot, right? And a culture that says there are many ways to God. No one can claim to know the way. We live in a culture in which the only absolute is that there are no absolutes, which in itself is a major contradiction, which we don't quite have the time to deal with this morning. But listen, because we are all affected by this culture, we swim in this kind of culture, right? We hear Jesus removing neutrality like he does in this metaphor, saying that he is the gate. And I think we are, most often, we are either embarrassed by Jesus' claim and we try to make excuses for it, we try to find ways to soften this claim, maybe create loopholes if possible. Or the other thing that we often do is we adopt an us versus them mentality. And us against them mentality and our defensiveness, a kind of angry fortress mentality. We're right, we're the good people, they're wrong, they're the bad people, right? And I'm telling you that neither of those options work with biblical Christianity. 
And I'm going to try to show you that in a moment. But second, when Jesus claims to be the gate, this means that he is a threat to your self-righteousness. He is claiming to be a threat against any and all forms of self-righteousness. See, Jesus doesn't just come along and say, I am the gate in a vacuum. It's not like Jesus was walking around and he said, you know, now's a good time to go ahead and talk about myself being the gate. Um, There is a context. There's a reason for Jesus saying this. Leading up to this passage, all of chapter 9 in John is dealing with the story of Jesus healing a blind man, right? And when the Pharisees found out about what Jesus had done, they were furious, right? And in chapter 9, verse 16, they say this about Jesus. They say, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath, right? We are the professional rule checkers here, okay? And Jesus broke the Sabbath. Now, of course, he didn't really break the Sabbath, but they had created all kinds of extra rules about things like the Sabbath day, right, as a way to measure their righteousness and as a way to evaluate the righteousness of others, really a system for pleasing God through work, through their works. And Jesus walked all over that system, and they're angry about it. And so when the Pharisees were interviewing this blind man, again, this is all in chapter 9, you can read it, and the blind man actually starts defending Jesus. This is what they said to him in verse 34. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They excommunicated him, right? They kicked him out of the church. When Jesus says that he's the gate and that, you know, that we find life by coming through him, he, what he's doing in this passage is he's contrasting himself with the Pharisees, who he calls thieves and robbers in this passage. Verse 8 and verse 10, you see it. And what he says about the Pharisees, these thieves and robbers, is that they come to steal, kill, and destroy. And I wonder if you know that about your self-righteousness. That it is the way to death and to destruction. Sure it is. You look to your performance, whatever your particular checklist of do's and don'ts involves individually. And what you are trying to do with that is you are trying to measure your worth. You are trying to gain approval based on your conformity. You're trying to get an identity for yourself is what you're doing. I know I'm a good person because, well, just look at my resume. But I'm telling you, it is a shaky, insecure business Because you never know if you've done enough. And you never know if maybe this time you've blown it too big. But it's even more than that. Because the flip side of trying to find your identity and your performance is that it makes you feel superior to everyone else around you. Right? You start looking down on others who don't quite measure up. Or you look down on groups of people. You're trying to find out who you're better than. Right? And so maybe you look down at other races or people from the other side of the tracks or people who just don't have your, they aren't keeping your checklist. And you wind up either saying things or thinking things deeply in your heart like this. How dare you lecture me? I'm far better than you. I'm right or we're right and you are nothing. The things we look to for righteousness, they come in so many different forms, don't they? 
I mean, so many different brands of self-righteousness, conservatism, traditionalism, right, moralism, liberalism, do-goodism. You can even be self-righteous about not being self-righteous, you know. Look at those people over there. They're so self-righteous. I'm so much better than them. At the end of the day, your attempts and my attempts at self-righteousness, they are the very things that improve upon the wickedness in this world creating division and hostility and life-choking slavery. And when Jesus claims to be the gate, He threatens every form of self-righteousness. Why? Because He is not claiming to show you a way. He is not claiming to show you a path. He's not even claiming to be able to point you to the door or to the gate. I mean, sure, Jesus taught a lot of good things about how to live life, right? And He, he gave us an example of a life in his own life, that was pleasing to God. But none of of those things get at the heart of what Jesus came to be. He didn't come pointing the way. He came saying, I am the way. I am the door. I am the gate. And friend, that is the final nail in the coffin of your self-righteousness. Your righteousness, no matter how good you think, no matter how better you think it is than somebody else's, it can never earn the smile of God. I mean, if all of this life was based on your performance, your resume, you could just dismiss Jesus and get on with life. But when Jesus says that He is the gate, good or bad, your resume doesn't mean a thing to Him. It is only when we come through the gate that we have the chance of healing the brokenness of our lives and this world. Only through this gate do we ever find freedom in life? Now, when Jesus claims to be the gate, it means that He removes neutrality, right? He threatens self-righteousness. But finally, it also means that He saves by grace. This is a very simple point. In verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever, Whoever enters through Me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. I confess I'm not a very good grammarian. Okay, And I've had plenty of people happy to point that out over the years. But here I do want to say to you that my grammar doesn't matter. But Jesus' grammar, it matters. When Jesus says that whoever enters through Him will be saved, it's very important that that verb is in the passive voice. The to be verb, right? It's really important that Jesus talks about salvation in the passive voice, and He is always doing this. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is saying that salvation isn't something you do, it is something that is done for you. Right? If you're not a Christian, you may have heard Christians talking like this, and you found yourself scratching your head even, because Christians, they talk about things like getting converted, and being saved, and being born again. And if that's you, I'm with you. It does sound weird when you hear it. (laughs) Because we live in a world where the resume is everything, right? You get a job when you can show and list on your resume all the different things that you've accomplished. And you get admitted into a university when you've achieved a certain score on your ACT, SAT, whatever you take, and your GPA and all that kind of stuff. When you can show your achievements, right? You get evaluated on your credit report based on how well or how poorly you've handled your finances. If you're like me, you, you get married by, by finding someone and giving them, you know, a, a false padded resume. Um, 
I'm only kidding a little bit about that. And then, you know, and Christians start, you know, when Christians, they start talking not about what they did, but what about what was done for them. It, it sounds strange. It sounds upside down. It sounds backwards from everything in this world. And I am saying, yes, if you understand that you are beginning to get Christianity and beginning to get Jesus, it is upside down. Jesus comes along and he topples the meritocracy. Bono, uh, the, the theologian um, and the lead singer of the band U2, and a Christian, by the way, he said this in an interview. He said, I'm pretty sure that you know the universe operates by the laws of karma, essentially. All physical laws you do, and you know what you put out comes back against you. Now, what he's talking, you know, just before you judge him, what he's talking about is the meritocracy, right? He's talking about a world in which the resume is everything, and your demerits and your demerits, they mean everything, right? But then he keeps talking, and he says, then... Then enters the story of grace, which really is the story of Christ, which turned this view of the universe upside down, and it's completely counterintuitive. I mean, very, very hard for human beings to grasp grace. We can actually grasp atonement, revenge, fairness, all of this we grasp, but we don't grasp grace very well. I'm much more interested in grace because I'm really depending on it. And the person who's interviewing him at this point kind of leans in and he says, ask him, desperately needing it? (laughs) And Bono says, yeah, you know, if I'm living by karma, I'm in big, big trouble. The way Jesus and Christians talk about being saved and getting converted, it may sound strange at first, but trust me, this is the best news possible. To live your life by karma or your own righteousness or your resume, it is a big, big trouble. This is the best possible news I can give you this morning. That your resume doesn't mean a thing to Jesus. He came and he turned the world upside down. If you come through him, you will be saved. Because his resume is the only one that matters. And so if you come through him, you come depending on his merit in your place, believing that he died the death you should have died. And in your place, he lived the life you could not live. Okay, so let me quickly give you three points of application to take with you. First, exclusive inclusivity, right? Jesus is so bold, he is so blunt in his claim to be the gate, that a lot of the time we either feel embarrassed about this claim or we adopt this us versus them mentality. I mean, it's an exclusive claim. There is no other way to be saved but through Jesus. It's an absolute that doesn't need to be apologized for. But if you believe, if you believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, you absolutely cannot adopt an us versus them mentality. Why? Because the fundamental, the bottom line of this community is grace. No one gets in by their goodness, by their conservatism, by their race, by their socioeconomic status. Right? It doesn't, the rich, the poor, the drug addict, the volunteer Sunday school teacher, the black, the white, the ugly, the pretty, we all come in by grace. And that's it. And because we all come in by grace, that means that this community should be a community that is expressing exclusive inclusivity. Jesus is the only gate, but it is open to all and any because the only way in is through grace. No other way. So let me ask you how you're doing with this. 
Because I wonder in your life who you have written off. (laughs) Who you have said, maybe to no one but yourself, I'm done with that person. They'll never come to church. They'll never come to Jesus. You've written them off. Who have you given up on over time? And let me ask you this. What kind of church are we trying to build at Grace Community? We are trying to build one that is open and welcoming, one that is gathering people from all walks of life to come and hear the exclusive claims of Jesus and to come in by grace. So I'm asking you now corporately, how are you doing with that? Do you really believe this about Jesus? If you do, it changes the way you live. And it, it compels you to gather in the lost. Second, Jesus promises, second piece of application, Jesus promises in verse 10 that He has come that we may have life, and He says that we may have it to the full. If you're honest, I think, one of the things that bothers you is how narrow this claim is of Jesus. Jesus is saying that there is no other way in but through Him. And that is a really tight and really narrow claim. No other way but through me. And that looks like anything but life and life to the full. It almost seems like a contradiction, right? It seems so restrictive and narrow and tight and pinched that you just have to come through Jesus and only through Jesus through this tight space. How can that be the way to fullness of life? If I can just challenge you with that a moment, you already believe this in your life. And it's expressed in a number of different ways. You already believe that the way to fullness is through narrowness. That the way to more is through tightness. Right? Because if you say to me, you say, you know, I'm out of shape and you know, I feel so lethargic and, you know, I, I need more energy and I need more stamina. And I might say to you, well, you know what you need to do? And you start exercising. You become very disciplined, very regimented in your discipline, in your exercise, because you know that if you tighten your focus, if you get narrow, if you get regimented, that's what leads to fullness of life, right? If you say, I really want to have some more flexibility with my finances, I want to open up some more investment opportunities or something like that, then what you do is you get really, really tight with your budget and you watch every penny that you spend and that kind of, because you know that the way to fullness is through narrowness, right? If you want to get ahead and move up in your career and have more opportunities, you need to become more focused, more disciplined to squeeze through to fullness, It is by coming through the narrow way that you are opened up to the fullness of being who God made you to be. I mean, you squeeze in through this gate, and Jesus is saying it opens up to a life of freedom, to a life of grace and love and fullness. Okay, third, if you want to learn how to become exclusively inclusive and have life to the full, And if you want to be free of the insecurity that chases you and haunts you around because you're trying to measure your worth by your little checklist that you have, and if you want to be free of that need to look down on other people and feel superior to other people, there is really, really good news for you this morning. And the good news, I'm telling you this morning, it is both very, very easy and very, very hard, right? This is the good news. All you need to come to Jesus is nothing. 
That's it. And that's easy. Grace and grace alone. All you need is nothing. But it is also hard for us. Because so many of of us think that we actually have more than nothing. Our morality, our friends, our connections, our service, our nice and outgoing personalities, our conservatism, our good family values, all this kind of stuff. Some form, some brand of self-righteousness. And what Jesus is saying to you this morning is, I'm sorry, this is a tight, narrow gate. And there is no room for your righteousness to squeeze in with you. You have got to come to Jesus with absolutely nothing. And only when you do that will you find rest, peace, and safety, and life in the sheep pen. But Jesus is the gate, he says. This is what he says in verse 7. I am the gate for the sheep. (laughs) We could have done so much more with this this morning. But when Jesus calls us sheep, it is not a compliment. The image is not fluffy, cute, cuddly animals. The image is helpless, stupid, utterly dependent, right? Sheep don't have anything to offer, but they're utter and complete dependence. They come through the gate with nothing. And I am asking you, what about you? Come to Jesus with nothing and you find all the grace you need. You come to Jesus with nothing and you get an identity in Him that cannot possibly be shaken. Come to Jesus with nothing and let His grace move you out into the world in grace. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank You Oh, we thank you that Jesus did not come to give us a system in order for us to earn our righteousness before you. We thank you that he did not come pointing the way to the gate, but that he came saying that he is the gate. And whoever comes in by him finds life and can find it to the full. Father, all of us, no matter who we are, it is our default way of living in this world that we look for an identity based on our performance. It's our default way of living that we look around us for individuals or groups of individuals that we can feel superior to to help bolster our self-esteem and our identity. Father, forgive us Help us, help us by your grace to forsake all other loves in this life, to forsake every other form of righteousness that we might cling to in this life. And help us to come to the gate, to Jesus, clinging only to his righteousness in our place in order that we might have life and have it to the full, in order that we might become a people who are moving out into the world in grace, in order that we might become a church that is gathering in people from all walks of life to hear these exclusive claims of Jesus and to learn about the wonder of amazing grace that is ours in Jesus. We ask these things in His name. Amen.